Hi, this is Don Grady of My Three Sons, Robbie Douglas, and you are listening to On Screen and Beyond. 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 On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome to another edition of On Screen and Beyond, Brian with you, and this is episode 31, and we've got a lot of things to talk about this episode um, let's see here. On the interview segment, we have a very special guest, actor-composer Don Grady, who was a Mouseketeer on the Mickey Mouse Club, and he played Robbie Douglas on My Three Sons, which comes out on DVD on January 20th with Season 1, Volume 2. All right? Uh, a couple months ago, we had Season 1, Volume 1. Now they're coming out with Season 1, Volume 2. And Don talks about uh, My Three Sons on this episode. And uh, he also has a great CD that's coming out, or has come out, rather, and it's called Boomer. And we'll talk about that and uh, the things that are going on in his life. And we're going to play some short clips from the songs from Boomer, so we think you'll enjoy that. And we'll also look at the rumored remakes, sequels, upcoming movies, and what's coming your way for TV and movie DVD releases. That's right. All here on On Screen and Beyond. Uh, let's see. A couple other things we want to let you know about. Um, uh, we're giving away an autographed photo of Ryan and Sean of Ryan and Sean's Not So Excellent Adventure. And all you have to do is watch our YouTube video of the Honolulu world premiere. And in the video, a girl who was in the audience uh, gave her a reaction to the movie. And she said she liked the what... She thought it was very ninja. Okay, that's what she says. She says, I like the blank, and it was very ninja. All right, and then she goes on to say about how she wants to make a hand clap and all this thing. But uh, if you can tell us what she liked that she thought was very ninja, uh, email us at uh, feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. And if you give us the correct answer on December 31st, we're going to pick a winner from all the correct answers. And... Um, We'll send you out that autographed photo of Ryan and Sean. Also, Tim Enos, who plays Helga in the movie, signed it too. So that's three signatures on there. And uh, let's see here. Now, if you want to get complete details, you can go to our website, onscreenandbeyond.com. And that gives you a rundown of everything. It gives you a link to go to the YouTube video and uh, all that. So it's very simple. you just got to watch it, and uh, then we'll come up with a winner. And then also sitting right in front of me. I just picked it up. We have the green balls, the little green balls that they had at their premiere. They signed, and I have one here that we'll be giving away. Hear that? I just bounced it for you. And uh, that's going to be given away in a contest coming up after this first one is done. So that's something to look forward to. So let's see. What else you got to do here? Oh, check out our website, onscreenandbeyond.com, for our poll question. And the question this time is, what is your favorite Christmas special? Is it, one, A Charlie Brown Christmas, two, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, three, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or four, Frosty the Snowman? So give us your opinion on what you think was the best Christmas special. 
And also check out the On Screen and Beyond Holiday Gift Guide right on our front page of our website. It features CDs and DVDs of people who we have interviewed. And uh, we give you a link there that you can go and go to that person's site and you can purchase their product if you'd like. Like uh, some of the things we have, our Ryan and Sean's Not-So-Excellent Adventure DVD, which is out now. You can get that now. It is available. And uh, let's see, Chad and Jeremy's Archaeology CD, which is out. And Stan Livingston, who played Chip Douglas on My Three Sons, has an instructional DVD on how to get into the acting business. All right, And it's very important that you would uh, want to see that because there's a lot of pitfalls that people come across and then they you know, don't uh, you know, get into the business the right way and they have problems and everything. So you might want to check that out because it could help you a lot if you are going in that direction that you want to be in the movies all right, or TV. And uh, he gives all kinds of uh, expert advice from himself. Also, all these other many, many, many people who are in the business, uh, Academy Award winners and everything. So check that out. And let's see, also Don Grady's Boomer CD, which we will be uh, previewing some of the songs in this episode in the interview segment. So check out Don Grady's Boomer CD. That's a, it's, a, it's really a good CD, so you might want to get that one. And let's see, what else we got to do here? That's about it for now. But coming up next, we have Remake Madness continues right here on Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness, well, 2011 look for Johnny Depp to appear in a remake of the 1960s TV show Dark Shadows. Depp will play vampire Barnabas Collins with Tim Burton's direction again. Okay, they too team up again for another movie and this time it's going to be the old Dark Shadows TV show and let's see 1994's Romancing the Stone which starred Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner is about to be moved into the remake madness zone that's right they're going to look at remaking Romancing the Stone and let's see it is in the early screenwriting stage segment right now so uh, that that's uh, it is coming our way let's see hbo's rome may be heading to the big screen nothing is definite yet uh, they're still in the talks and we'll see what happens on that one we'll let you know if anything comes up and that's about it for remake madness right now on on screen and beyond coming up next rumored upcoming movies right here on on screen and beyond <laughs> Upcoming movies. Well, it looks like Bruce Willis is directing a movie called Three Stories of Joan. And Owen Wilson will be in it. And it's currently filming and set for a release in 2009. Also speaking of Bruce Willis, he'll star in a movie called The Last Full Measure in 2010. It's about an ambitious government official. And it will also star Morgan Freeman, Andy Garcia, and Lawrence Fishburne. And look for Morgan Freeman to also star as Nelson Mandela in a Clint Eastwood film starts shooting in early 2009. That's about it for upcoming movies. Coming up next, taking you down to Sequel City, find out what's going on in that Sequel City stuff. Sequel City, well, it looks like Hancock 2 is in the works, according to Will Smith, and there's no release date uh, on it yet, and everything, I'm sure, is still in the early stages, but that's uh, something to look forward to. And let's see, Twilight 2 starts shooting in March as they continue the story of the lovelorn vampire and his girlfriend. And they seem to be looking at another sequel to The X-Files. That's what they're talking about. I don't know. Uh, let's see here. Nothing's definite, but they are considering the possibility. And Police Academy 
is getting into another sequel. I believe it is number eight, and it will star Steve Gutenberg in the role he started back in 1984. They're just not going to let that one die, are they? Well, okay, that's about it for Sequel City for now. Coming up next, TV on DVD right here on On Screen and Beyond. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest is coming out on DVD and it races into stores on February 17th, 2009. It features the music of Don Grady, who was one of the original Mouseketeers, and Robbie on My Three Sons, and he's coming up in this interview segment. He talks about uh, a lot of different things, including the stuff he wrote for uh, Johnny Quest. And let's see, The Smurf Season 2, Volume 1 is heading to stores on February 17th. Look for a single-disc release from Warner on this one. And Nash Bridges, the second season, heads our way for March 3rd from CBS Paramount in a five-disc set. That's about it for TV on DVD. Coming up next, what is coming out on DVD for the movies? Right here on On Screen and Beyond. Movies coming out on DVD, it looks like Righteous Kill with uh, De Niro and Pacino hits DVD on January 6th. Also on January 6th, look for Pineapple Express as it's released to DVD. And January 27th, look for College starring Drake Bell. It rolls into stores. It's about the ultimate weekend trip of three high school boys as they visit a college. And on February 3rd, Look for The Secret Life of Bees with Queen Latifah and Dakota Fanning. And last but not least, for movies on DVD, look for Swing Vote with Kevin Costner as it comes to DVD on January 13th. That's about it for movies on DVD. And coming up next, as I said, we have a Mouseketeer, Robbie Douglas, a composer who has done a tremendous amount of work that you know if you have kids or are a Disney lover, because he has done a lot for the Disney Platinum series. So um, just hang around, sit back, enjoy the interview with uh, Robbie Douglas, Don Grady, right here on On Screen and Beyond. He's going to talk about the new DVD coming out for My Three Sons. He's going to talk about the Mouseketeers. He's going to talk about his new CD. We're going to play some songs from the cd it's a it's it's a fun time so i hope you'll stick around and listen to that one right here on on screen and beyond welcome to another edition of on screen and beyond and today my guest is a gentleman who has had a career that has spanned from the Mickey Mouse Club to My Three Sons, and now he's a composer, has a new CD out. Welcome, please, Mr. Don Grady. How you doing, Don? 
I'm doing fine. Wow, the the applause is deafening. <laughs> pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Oh, there, there I go. I'm off on the wrong track already, but uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. All right, Don, let's start off with the fact that Season 1, Volume 2 of My Three Sons comes out on DVD on January 20th. And one of the things I wanted to mention was that on Season 1, Volume 1 on the DVD, one of the disappointing things was the fact that there were no extras Um so I don't know what's going to happen with the the second volume, but were you ever approached for anything from the studios to add anything, commentary or anything? No, um, I'm thinking that they're waiting to you know to go into the other seasons before they bring in extras. And I mean, there's so many stories to tell about my three sons and the and the things that happened to us, the way we filmed, the way McMurray filmed, you know, three months out of the year, and all the consequences of that. Um, but um, you know, I think they they put out volume one to see how it did, and it and it did very well. So um, they're releasing volume two on on January twentieth to uh, follow that up. And I guess if if that goes over well, they'll uh, they'll continue releasing uh, the show. I mean, we did we did twelve years of My Three Sons, so there's plenty plenty more to go, and there's uh, plenty opportunity to do some extras and. Christmas reels and that sort of thing. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's, like you say, there's <laughs> many, many years. And, and yeah. if they're doing them, you know, two volumes per season, that's that's a lot. I mean... Well, the thing about the first season, that was 1960 when we started. That was way before... Uh, not all of that way before, but it was before they started doing, you know, 26 shows a year. I mean, we were... We did... Um, I think we did like 40... 46 or 48 episodes that first year. Wow. In those days, we did as many episodes almost as there were weeks in the year. Jeez. That was before um, the networks got smart and said, well, let's just do half a year and then we'll double up on the reruns. Right, know? yeah, yeah. So we were cranking and, um, you know, we worked, I think we got two weeks off the first season before hmm. going back into the next season. And again, that was the black and white days. Yeah. So when you see TV shows now saying, you know, uh, we've been on for five years and we're hitting our, you know, whatever number of episode, by the time they've hit their their hundredth uh, episode, you had done that in two years. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We were doing twice as many episodes um, a year as uh, we ultimately ended up doing what the what the formula now is, which is about twenty five, twenty six, and not even that. Sometimes they just, you know, they just put out like twelve or thirteen episodes. Yeah. Yeah. to see how things go but um back then you know it was only it was the three major networks right you know the whole the whole nation was kind of polarized around you know ABC CBS and NBC and um and so when they made a commitment um they felt pretty sure about it and they let us they they gave it a year to go and with a star like Fred McMurray who was a big star in, in those days coming from film uh, doing television, they you know they felt that um, they had a, they had something um, worth going for. Yeah. Now, something else I noticed that was kind of uh, unusual was uh, Peter Tweeksbury was your director, but he was the director for the complete season, and that that's unusual, isn't it? To to have the same director every show. For it a is season? in most shows. Most shows will have a number of different directors, but our show it was mandatory. We we had to have one director because of the way we shot. Oh, we that's shot right. around Fred McMurray. That's right. Yeah, I didn't. He think only came that. in. That was the deal. He only came in for three months out of the year, and then we go when he left. We go back and do all the close-ups and two shots and 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 you know all do all the pickups of 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 the same scenes. Mm -hmm. 
um, and pick them up. So sometimes we would be doing, I mean, we, I think minimum we would do three shows, three different shows a day. I remember one time doing, um, something like 14, 13 or 14 different shows in the same day. Hmm. <laughs> I remember uh, Stan Livingston when we talked with him. He he had said the same thing, and it, it, you guys must have been. I mean, to remember so many different lines from so many different shows and everything, it must have been really hard. It was mind numbing. <laughs> had to be. Yeah, it really was. It was just like you know, it, and the hardest thing was changing all the the wardrobe, constantly changing the wardrobe. You know, I used to say. I wore all the hair off my legs just changing my pants. Because, <laughs> you know, back then, especially in the kind of in the middle 60s, in the mid after the Beatles and everything, we were wearing hip huggers. And, yeah. you know, the Douglases were not uh, all that. I mean, they were kind of, they tried to stay up with some of the trends. Mm-hmm. Some of the trends. <clears throat> so, those tight pants, you know, <laughs> took the hair right off our legs. But um, we had like three or four different matching people. Matching was a term that, that they use in, in the, TV for, you know, matching when you said this particular line, what were you doing, you know? Yeah. Now, I also noticed that in Season 1, Volume 2, going over the list of the episodes, and I'll, I'll go over a couple here just to give you a, a reminder, um, many of the episodes... Good luck with that. <laughs> many of the episodes concerned you and a different girlfriend or avoiding a girl, and... That was about it for 12 years for Robbie. <laughs> Uh, I noticed, it, okay, now here's, here, this will hopefully bring back some memories here. On episode 21, uh, Robbie and his date are frightened by a man in a trench coat. Uh, episode 29, Robbie is trying to interest a classmate, Mary Bell Quinby, in Affairs of the Heart. Episode 32, Robbie's girlfriend is refined and elegant, and he tries to impress her with his supposed love of classical music. And episode 35, Robbie is trying to avoid the clutches of a girl named Mary Lou. So you were quite the ladies' man back then. <laughs> it was a parade of one blonde after the next, I'll tell you. It was, just, <laughs> yeah, it was in brunettes. And, uh, yeah, Robbie always had, you know, I mean, that was the thing. He was, he was 15, 16, 17, so he was, um, you know. But he did have a, he did have a, um, a girlfriend for a while, um, uh, Peter Tewksbury, the director, that we had, who was brilliant, by the way. He was really the one who established the Three Sons um, environment and uh, you know, the dog on the table and the boys being messy and the house being messy, which was so, you know, controversial in the early 60s. But we would get a lot of letters saying, yeah, that's how my house looks. But um, Robbie had, he wanted Robbie to have a, a, a girlfriend for a while. So um, there was this girl named, that Robbie called Pig. And um, she was, um, you know, she was a cute girl, but she was like into um, cars. So he, she, and Robbie would work on would work on his car, his old car. Once mm-hmm. in a while, they'd both have grease all over their face and stuff like that. But I think he actually, I think there were maybe even possibly three episodes with the same girl. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't always chasing somebody different on every episode, then? <laughs> yeah, or they were chasing me and. I don't know, that seemed to work, you know, well, and, um, uh, they, you know, that there was, there was a lot of comedy to be had there. It was, this, a lot of times Robbie would get himself stretched a little bit too thin and he'd have, you know, two girls or, or three going at the same time and he'd run to dad, you know, dad, gee, dad, what do I, gosh, dad, I don't know, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, dad would say, well, son, next time 
Just pick one. Tell <laughs> <laughs> uh, Now, on this DVD release, um, one thing I did notice that with all the episodes that they had, the issues that arose in the show were, you know, very simple. Obviously, uh, they had to be, you know, taken care of in a half hour. But actually, they were very real. Uh, in the lives of everybody, because, I mean, you know, some of them, like, there was one with, um, you're struggling with girls in a lot of them, and uh, Chip is, uh, one time he quit, quit baseball uh, because he was in a slump or something, and uh, another one, uh, you and Mike were needed to earn extra pocket money, so you started painting fences, and, you know, and, and those are all real-type issues, even though they solved them very quickly, but, you know, um, so they, yeah. it was kind of... A real life thing. Oh yeah, no, no. That that's what made the show work. It it was comedy, and you're right. It, it had to be sewn up pretty quickly. But but all the issues were real issues that would happen to kids and and a motherless family. Um and and you know the writers would come down on the set, you know, just to get ideas from us mm-hmm. as to what was going on with us, you know. But the the formula for three sons. For many, many years until the women invaded the show. <laughs> but the formula in the beginning was that there would be a main story. Each episode had a main story. And then there would be a secondary story that was the, the minor story that would be going on. So if Robbie had a problem, um, at school with one of the teachers, um, as the main story, then there might be a, a secondary story of, of Chip, um, having a, a problem with his friend Sudsy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and usually the problem's related in some way. So that when Steve Douglas gave advice to one of the boys, it made sense um, with the other problem that was going on. Sometimes it would be that way. Other, other times it would be totally different. But that was the, the kind of the formula, and that seemed to work really well. And the advice that Steve gave was always good advice. It yeah. was, you know... It, there were little morals in the show. There were little principles that, um, you know, of integrity that were observed and, um, you know, and Steve Douglas stood for those and, and guided the family through their, you know, their, their domestic problems. Mm-hmm. Another, in, I noticed in one of the episodes that's going to be in this new DVD release is that, um, episode 19, while Steve is away, his, or his sister rather, Aunt Harriet, Boy, I'm, I'm sure out of 300 episodes or whatever it was, yeah. you know, picking one out. Uh, but that just that one just seemed a little unusual because, like you said, it was all male. But all of a sudden, his sister Aunt Harriet comes in and sort of takes charge while he's away. And I noticed the uh, the person who played the character of the aunt was uh, um, called her name was Joan Tweaksbury. You happen to know if that was the director's sister, wife, or anything like that? That was Peter's sister. Oh, really? Yeah, Joan was an actress, a really good actress, too. Yeah. And that was Peter Tewksbury's sister. And she was, um, and later, I believe, um, we brought her back on the show to be a school teacher, um, uh-huh. for a couple of episodes. But she was, she was really, really a good, um, kind of a method type actress. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have come through my three sons. Um, Ryan O'Neill, uh, did, you know, was on the show once. Um, I, somewhere I have a list. I should drag that list out, yeah. but there are a lot of people. Well, I noticed Bo Bridges was in this release that's coming out. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. So a lot of people came through, um, Three Sons, visited the Douglases in Bryant Park, and, you know, yeah. no, no, I mean, no family can sew up their problems in a half hour, um, like, like you can do it on TV, but, you, you know, we we had a way the Douglases had a way of presenting it and showing it and 
people actually believed it. We got a lot of letters um, um, saying that the reality of the show was better than the than the comedy, the sitcom. Although it was a funny show, yeah, it really tended to be more of a warm show. It wasn't um, it wasn't um, burlesque in any way. It, it wasn't you know slapstick. It, mm-hmm. it and and McMurray wanted it to be um, really what it was, which was um, more realistic and more, more in a way, more dramatic. And that's why they picked Tewksbury, because Peter Tewksbury had come from Father Knows Best. He really had that down. Um, we would get there early in the morning, and, and Peter would make us work with these little um, spools of thread on a little diagram that was the set. And we would work out our scenes, and, and he'd say, okay, when you say this, what would you be doing? Where would you go? And so I would have my little spool of thread. I said, well, I, I think if I was talking to Dad, I would go over here and want to be closer to him, and then she and he's okay, the dog comes in over here, so we work out a scene that way huh. and um and then we go in, and um and film it wow, that's now did Peter stay with the show for the majority of its run, or no, I wish he had, but um um Peter was an artist, and he um an artist who was way creative um and he 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 really put the company into the red the first year because we went so you know we went over time um we we took almost a whole year to do all the episodes and um he came back with a lot of ideas and we all wanted peter back but um you know the money people said no we got to have we got to have somebody who can who can pull it in on time so um I think our second director was um, Gene Reynolds. Oh well, <laughs> for the second year he Gene was no Reynolds. slouch. <laughs> Gee, no, Gene Reynolds went on to produce Mash. Right? Yeah, yeah. And he was a kid actor himself. Oh really? I didn't yeah. know that. Huh. Well, I'm sure you know everybody's going to be anxious to see that that come out on January 20th. I'm going to be anxious myself. I haven't seen those episodes in years. My yeah. kids are going to wonder who the heck that is. <laughs> <laughs> Talk a little bit more about the show in a, in a little bit here, but uh, we'll we'll start off with what you you how you got into the business to begin yeah. with. Oh well, you know I didn't really decide. I from as long as I can remember, I was playing musical instruments. I, I started the drums when I was three, and by the time I was twelve, I played about eight or nine different musical instruments, and I sang and I tapped, and <clears throat> I just loved music, and um, and so I was always doing that. You know, it didn't. I don't remember it ever being a, cho- a choice. <laughs> so I think it's in my DNA. Hmm. Um, and when I was 12, my, my dance teacher uh, saw that there was an audition at the Cow Palace, a, a cattle call, if you will, at the Cow Palace up in San Francisco. We used to live up in the Bay Area in California. For the Mouseketeers, it was 1957. And uh, they were looking for a new Mouseketeer. It was the third, and we didn't know it at the time, but it would be the final year of the filming of the Mouseketeers, and um, and went to the audition, and I got very very fortunate. I I and I you know did my thing. I I don't even remember what I did. You only had like five minutes, and I did. I played four or five musical instruments. I sang a a song imitating Johnny Ray. He had a big hit called uh, "Cry." Yep. Yeah. Um, at the time, and. Um, and then I did a tap dance, and I fit it all into five minutes. I did it with my partner at the time, Terry Hooper. Um, we did an, a separate thing, but they they liked me, and um, and Terry and I were forever split up after that. 
but um but they called me you know they wanted me to come down and meet Walt Disney mm-hmm. um which I did and and I auditioned for him actually there's a there's a story there um they also called another uh boy um and before we um auditioned for Walt Disney they they said to us not only one of you is going to be able to get picked here so they we both did the audition my audition didn't go so well the pianist was rushing my 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 tempo and uh, kind of throwing me curves. Um, and the other uh, boy, Buster was his name, it went really well. And afterwards, Walt Disney went over to him and his father and said how great he was and how wonderful he was. And my mother and I were sitting, we were sitting on the other side of the room and he just kind of looked over at us and just nodded very nice. You know, he said something like very, very nice and walked out of the room. So on the plane trip back to San Francisco, we all thought really, uh, that Buster had it. They were even inviting us to come visit them <clears throat> in Los Angeles, but it turns out that I got it. And we found out later that what Walt was doing was he, they had already picked me, but the Mouseketeers were famous. Uh, Annette and Cubby and Karen and Doreen and Darlene and Sharon and, Bobby and Lonnie, Tommy, they were all famous, and um, he was testing me to see if I could handle, um, you know, being in the in the shadow, and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Really, it was a psychology test, hmm. which was very, um, I think, very smart. It didn't, it didn't help Buster much, right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it was very smart because it, he, you know, he he was able to. Um, Spared out the kids, um, and there were four new mouseketeers picked that year that, you know, they could handle a situation of, of living in the shadow of these incredible mouseketeers that were already so famous. Right. Yeah. And now, did you know of them, the Mickey Mouse Club and everything? Had you been a, a fan of it? Oh, know? my gosh. It was the biggest show, you know, in our lives at the time. I couldn't wait to get home. It came on at 5.30 or 5 o'clock, 5 or 5.30. It was an hour show. And, um, yeah, I couldn't wait to see it every day, you know. And yeah. Was, and, and to this day, I'll never forget the, the, actually, the Mouseketeers came through the audition when we were, when, when Buster and I were auditioning for Walt Disney. And I'll never forget the way they smelled. <laughs> the smell of the mice. But I, it was the first time that I had smelled, um, pancake makeup and, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and a hairspray and eyeliner and, you know, that kind of that whole smell of, the, the, the roar of the grease paint. Yeah, I was kind of wondering what you were. <laughs> where, where is he? Where is he going with it? <laughs> no, they smelled. Huh? Uh, that was the beginning of it for me, and um, you know, I was a week on the set. I felt like an outsider, but I was just privileged to be there. And finally, Annette and and a couple of the girls, I think it was Darlene and Doreen, came up, and Annette gave me a big kiss on my forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, oh my gosh, that was like you know that that was I was in I was I was in heaven. <laughs> I'm still good friends with her and her husband Glenn today, and mm-hmm. I take just this moment to to uh, wish her the best and and God bless her. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. yeah, it was it was an, a, an amazing experience for a 12 year old boy. Oh, I imagine you must have been just thrilled. I mean, that's everybody watched that show. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was a well-known show at the time. Yeah. And that was my first. We used to do five days at 
uh, at the studio, and then on Saturday we would go out to Disneyland and do four talent shows out there. And that was my very first time to Disneyland was was going out to work out there with with the other mice. Mm-hmm. So the very first time I saw Disneyland, we we all got we had to gather in the town hall, and then we'd come out, and the crowds would would cheer us, and we'd join the band, and we'd march down Main Street. As the band played, um, bum, you know, that was the first time I saw Disneyland was behind a band with the Mouseketeers walking down Main Street. You know, those are the kind of memories you just, you don't, you just don't forget those. Yeah. And did you get a chance to enjoy the park or were you strictly working and had to do that? Well, um, we, we couldn't go out into the park because, uh, they didn't, you know, they were concerned that, um, uh, for our safety, so True. we had to wait till the park was closed. So we got to see the park after hours, and we got you know we got on the rides right away. I mean, it was it was amazing. No waiting, so, huh? <laughs> yeah. Karen, Musketeer Karen took me over to Tom Sawyer's Island, and the, the first hand I held, Musketeer <laughs> Karen, and I had a crush on her. Yeah. So, now, was that the first job you had in the business, or that was my first professional job? That's right. Mm-hmm. I was making one hundred and eighty-five dollars a week at the time. We thought that was a lot of money. It was more money than than my dad was making um, as a salami maker at the time. Yeah, and, back uh, then. You know, I was um, I was really going to take over the salami factory, and it's you know that's interesting how one. You know, one phone call will will change all that. It's a good thing I didn't because we're vegetarians now. <laughs> that would have been a tough one. <laughs> now, between the time of uh, the Mickey Mouse Club and my three sons, you continued to be in show business, of course. Yeah, you know, I was primarily like a song and dance man on the Mouseketeers, and uh, an agent saw me and said, "I think that the the kid can act," and I and um. So uh, Harold Swoverlin was his name, and so he started sending me out. At, and and after a few interviews, I started getting these dramatic roles on on what was hot at the time in the late fifties, uh, westerns. Mm-hmm. So some of your listeners will remember some of these shows. But there was the Restless Gun, the Rifleman, yeah. Gun Will Travel, Wagon Train, um, a lot of good shows. Uh, old Forty Five, yeah. And I I did I was always playing the you know the the young teenage kid who whose father was a drunk or who's who didn't have a father and he was protecting his mother and his little kids on the prairie with a big you know rifle that he could barely hold up <laughs> yeah. so there was a lot of dramatic roles and it 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 seemed like a long time for me as a kid i did a lot of shows but it was only like three years in there and then um i lost a show that i really wanted um Called Laramie, which was the first hour-long color western. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who, uh, yeah I a remember really that. Wonderful actor named Bobby Crawford, who was the brother of Johnny Crawford, who who was the boy on on Rifleman. The Rifleman, yeah, yeah. I didn't pa. know that. And um, you know, you say pa pa. Yeah, it's great. But um, I lost that show to Bobby, and I was I was uh, really um, uh, heartbroken about it. But I got a phone call from my agent. About a week later, and the, and they said they have to replace a character on a new series called My Three Sons, and you ha- they're looking for a replacement for a character named Robbie. So I went down there at noon, um, saw the producers, came and the director came back to school, and by the time I got home, I 
I had gotten a, a series, a sitcom, with Fred McMurray. I didn't know who Fred McMurray was. I didn't even know what a sitcom was. Oh, really? And uh, it was the first comedy role that I had had ever had ever done. But I was a replacement. Hmm. So, but not on the when the show was released, correct? Right, right. They they reshot the scenes. <clears throat> they were shooting the pilot at, at the time, and they reshot the scenes um, with me in them. And then, um, you know, and for several shows, I had a, a difficult time with the with the comedy because I I um, I was so serious. But but Peter Tewksbury, the director, said, "No, you know what? You're doing just great. You you, you just keep being be serious because that's you know comedy is serious. Yeah, <laughs> comedy is serious. So." I learned through Peter how to how to do comedy, you know, really coming from more of a of a serious place. It, so it was it was an interesting transition as an actor for me to to, to learn that. Hmm. Now, when you were on that show, uh, you already knew Tim Considine, correct? Yes, isn't that a coincidence? Yeah, because both because of you were I on. I had worked as a, a a bit actor on on his hit series before that, uh, Spin and Marty, which was part of the Mouseketeer yep. show. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just a coincidence that I ended up with Tim again. Hmm. Um, Tim played the part of Mike on My Three Sons. Yeah. And uh, we, I loved Tim and he loved me. We still love each other, but we used to get in fights. And um, one time we got in this, you know, I don't even remember what it was about, but we almost got in a fist fight. We were in, back, in the back of the Douglas station wagon. And, uh, you know, a week later we were doing it in a script. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized, oh my God, the, that's why the writers are hanging around down here. They're down here finding out who we are and they're writing about it. <laughs> <laughs> See, so it was like, oh, okay, so we're, you know, first they're they're writing stories and then they kind of find out who you are. Yeah. And they start writing to that character, you know. Yeah. Now, when you were on the the Mickey Mouse Club, getting back to that for just a moment, I I can vaguely remember. It seems so. You were always. In the musical skits, was is that correct, or am I just right? That that's absolutely right because um, that's one of the reasons I got the job was <clears throat> there were five days of the week on the Musketeer show. You know, there was circus day. I think Monday was music day, and then um, special guest day, and and then there was uh, Friday was talent roundup day. Mm-hmm. And on talent roundup day, they'd look all over the country to to find some talented kids, and they'd bring them in, and sometimes they they couldn't. They couldn't get somebody. Couldn't find somebody. So they, they would because I played these different musical instruments. They would dress me up. You know, I'd be a Mexican balladeer or a Japanese emissary, and I'd play the flute or I'd play the guitar and I'd sing a, um, you know, a song. I'm trying to remember the. Seems so. One time I remember. Maybe I, like I say, I, this it's so vague in my mind, but seems so. I remember you in a big puffy sleeves. Uh, I don't know. I, I, all I can think of is like the the um, the fruit on the head type thing, <laughs> you know, the common Miranda or whatever. <laughs> yes, that that that's I've got the song. Um, you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> that's how you do. That's how you sing calypso. Yeah, that's what I remember for some reason. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> the, the the mind is a is a stranger. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, so now, when when you were talking about uh, my three sons and you and Tim who were fighting, now Stan Livingston, you are you are you all still friends now? Yes, we are. Yeah, how could you not be? The show ran for twelve years. I know your whole practically your, the whole beginning of your life was with these guys. Yeah, we were really you know bonded at the hip, and uh, 
and uh, yes, Stanley and Barry Livingston, who later came in and played Ernie. Stanley was Chip, and uh, we still get together. And uh, Stanley, um, Stanley and I have been talking actually recently because I have um, we'll, you and I will be talking about it soon. I have a Boomer Jazz Rock Pop, which is mm-hmm. a CD that came out, and and Stanley has um, a DVD set about. Uh, um, Acting and, and getting your children into acting. The actor's so, uh, journey. Yes. Yes. So yeah. We're kind of coming. We're we're kind of coming back together because we both, you know, we both have something we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, and then Barry and I talk. So yeah, it's um, you know, it's a family that just uh, that doesn't quit. Hmm. Yeah, it seems. I mean, that show was on so long, and and I mean, basically, you grew up in front of America. Was that difficult for you? Well, you know, it. I started when I was 15, and uh, it went for 12 years. So by the time it, I was 27, it, that's a major part of your life, a very formative part of your life. Um, I think the, the, the real difficulty I had, you know, I mentioned a little while ago that the writers would write around who we were, around our character. Mm-hmm. And so I actually... I even have a hard time understanding how I had this problem now, looking back. But I had an identity crisis problem when I was about 19 or 20. I didn't know who I was and who Robbie was because they were really one and the same person. But that was in the 60s when um, really everything was coming unglued in in our society. Yeah. You know, um, civil rights was happening. Uh, women's rights was happening. The Beatles were happening. Um, and and I was all a part of that movement. I went to um, Montgomery, Alabama, and went to the Brown Chapel, and I went there myself to see what was going on. I didn't believe that there was um, the segregation that, that actually was going on in, in the world. I just, you know, you know, I was sheltered from right. it. I was isolated yeah. from it, and I wanted to see it. So I want, you know, my belief system and, and who I was as a person started to really separate from Robbie Douglas. Um so I, I had a conflict going there, plus there were things happening. That was me on the march to Montgomery. That was you on the steps out in D. There was smoke in the air, there was hope, there was hair As we carried the torch of freedom everywhere In our tie-dye we sang at the peace talk We were high at the loving at Woodstock And we moved to the beat, I can still feel the heat As we sat at the sitting and dancing in the street I noticed some of your songs head that direction, talking about the past and things like that. Yes, they do. I mean, but the 60s was an amazing, incredible decade. And um, 
the boomers, the baby boomers that of, of which I am one, came out of that decade, and um, and we 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 had a lot of changes that that uh, that happened to us and to the society, and we carry those with us. Although a lot of us went underground with it to have our children, have our careers, we're still a part of that. And we're seeing that now, we're seeing that happening in the world, that awareness is really starting to come back, maybe out of necessity, really, because it's such a small world now. And we're seeing the, the conflict of a lot of the fundamental beliefs in the world uh, rubbing up against each other. And we're looking, starting to look for a way to have a mind where we can all not only live together on the planet, but live together and um, and save the planet and provide for the planet that has provided for us because we're really tearing it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, A new mind is needed. And I do think that new mind got its jump start in the 60s. Mm. So yeah. I know we took a big leap there ahead, yeah. uh, but if, if you want to go back, we can certainly go back and pick it up where we left off. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, a part of the thing, for instance, um, Robbie got married on My Three Sons. And uh, he married Katie, and in the very first scene of Robbie and Katie being together, the producers had us in single beds, and this was in, I believe, 67. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so Don Grady went to the producers and said, you know, you can't, you can't have Robbie in a single bed <laughs> in 1967. <laughs> My gosh, you know, John Lennon is appearing on a on an album cover naked. Right. You can't have Robbie in, in a single bed. I mean, I didn't want to appear naked, but I made the point. And um, they said, well, we can't have you in a double bed. I mean, that, but that's, you know, we would get too many letters about that, and that's not happening on TV yet. We get censored. So I said, well, I don't think so. Let me, I said, let me, let me, let me look around TV. And I, I started to look at all the shows, and I finally found Bewitched, and they were in a double bed together. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I was able to go to Don Federson, our producer, and and say to him, look. It's it's being done on television. They're in a double bed. I mean, imagine that. In 1967, you know, having to, to show that they're in a double bed in order to get your point across. But, right. So that was, you know, those were the, those were the kind of um, conflicts I was experiencing between who Robbie Douglas was and who the Douglas family was and who I was, um, you know, Don Grady as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, with all the things that were going on, you seem to get a lot of opportunities from this show to to expand your horizons. I guess you'd call it. Um, That's a good way to put it. With your your, your singing group, you you had the now the Greffs. Oh yeah, the Greaves. The Greaves. Okay, the Greaves. Was was that an actual group or was that a television show group? So that was that was actually an actual group. It was my very first band. And uh, it was it was Don Grady's uh, Grady's Griefs, and um, it was it was the Griefs because they were all my friends. It was um, 
Gil Rogers, who's now uh, uh, Johnny Mathis's guitarist, Cubby O'Brien from the Mouseketeers. Cubby's a great drummer. He plays for Bernadette Peters hmm. now, but he was the drummer. And then another dear friend of mine, uh, uh, Wiley Rinaldi, was playing guitar. And, you know, I was um, <laughs> a lot of times with with uh with with some of the chords you know we we would be going back and forth well what's what's that chord and somebody would whisper oh it's a c7 well how do you play that in the middle of a song <laughs> so there was a lot of grief in you know in in the group and so i thought the name was apt yeah and, um, you know that that was a wonderful time and the griefs were actually on um um the, uh, my three sons show a couple of times yeah yeah and then i also got a chance i was the national um teenage chairman for cerebral palsy oh so i go around the country and i i was always into music i was always playing music when i was doing three sons and um you know and i would i find these incredible musicians you know in omaha and in uh, colorado springs and and i keep a, a an address book of them and just thinking someday i'm going to put together this great band yeah so a, a couple of years went by, and I was working for Canterbury Records, and this guy named um, Gary Zeekley came in with this. We we thought it was a great song. It was called Yellow Balloon, um, and um, I I never liked the rain outside. Mm-hmm. I always made me stay indoors. No 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 no. It's like a yellow balloon. Pop 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 pop, pop on a rainy afternoon. Pop. Anyway, a lot of your listeners may remember it. Yeah, yeah. Because it was a great song, so we we uh, we recorded it and put it out there, and in two weeks it it, uh, it took off, and um, it went right up the charts. It became a uh, a hit in the Northwest, um, and we needed to put a group together really fast. So that was the group it was the, that address book from that I'd been keeping that put together that group. And um, I called myself Luke. Are you? I disguised myself because um, Three Sons was popular, and I, I, you know, it was a separate thing. I didn't want Three Sons to be really to be in the shadow of the Yellow Balloon. Right. Yeah. So uh, we toured for three or four months, and until um, the kind of the the cat got out of the bag, and and my disguise got blown, and that kind of blew the that blew the group really. So, oh, really? Yeah. That was the end of it. That was the end of it. We had we had another we had a, an album come out. We had a couple of singles, but it was a it was a one hit group, um, and we still there's a record out now on Sundays called Yellow Balloon, that uh, that that has some of my songs from those days on there too. And, oh really? And, uh, it's actually has done quite well with people who love the California sunshine sound. Mm-hmm. You know that it was kind of the, the Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys. Yeah. Yellow Balloon. Um, yeah. Now, when you went, you actually went on American Bandstand as a group, correct? Yes, I did. So Dick Clock must have known who you were, but it was kept a secret at that time, or by that time right. had it been exposed? Yes, it was kept a secret, and Casey Kasem, we also did his show. Um, um, and I, Casey also knew about it, because I knew Casey, and it was hard to, 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 uh, to put a mustache on and some sunglasses and not have him know who I was right. but they were very cool and they you know they understood at the time yeah yeah but it must have been a thrill to hear a, a song from the group that you're in on the radio for the first time it must there must have been something there's nothing like hearing um something you've done on the radio yeah a song that you've participated in it somewhere on the radio it's just a great thrill <laughs> yeah fabulous 
Now, just to sort of finish up on My Three Sons, when you were on that show, was it a close-knit? Did you all hang around together, uh, you know, the yeah, it was sons? Huh? <laughs> all the sons and everything? Yeah, uh, you know, we were all different ages, so we had our own our own friends of our own, but uh, we spent most of the time we spent was with each other. Yeah, yeah. And the show was shot in such a strange way at the time. Um, McMurray, Fred McMurray was a very famous movie star at the time, and he, um, in order to, to um, you know, persuade him to do television, um, they said that the, he made it a deal that he would only work three months out of the year. Mm-hmm. So we would do all of his scenes. Uh, all the shows would be written at the beginning of the year for the most part. We'd do, do all of his scenes, and then we'd come back, you know, uh, three months later. Yeah. Pick up all the scenes, the close-ups and the two shots, and the uh, you know that we hadn't done. So it was a, we were doing sometimes twelve and sometimes uh, an eighteen, nineteen different shows a day. Wow, <laughs> a lot of matching problems, and we had three <laughs> matching people on the show, and they had to you know when did when did Robbie turn the lazy Susan? Well, that was you know four months ago. I think he turned it on the line. You know, yeah, chip. wrong shirt. Get out of here. <laughs> Huh, boy, that must. Dad, have been. get tramp off the. Robbie, get tramp off the table. <laughs> Jeez, that must have but been. We were very close, and um, um, like I said, it was a different. It was another family. We it, there didn't seem to be, as, as far as I remember, any egos getting in the way. Um, you know, it uh, it it was a very very uh, very harmonious um cast. We, we enjoyed each other's company a lot. And you left the show just the year before the last season? Yes. My contract was up on the 11th season, at the end of the 11th season. You know, I really was about music. I wanted to pursue music. And um, so I left at the end of the 11th season. And I went and um, the first thing I did was I I, uh, I did an album called Homegrown. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I really wanted to know, was the music good enough? Um, was I a good enough writer and performer, um, you know, to, to make it in that venue without the My Three Sons thing? So I released it uh, under my real name, my Italian name, which is Donna Grotti. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I went, again, I went around in disguise, um, and I got an offer from um, Warner Brothers and another offer from Elektra. And um, I went with Electra, and um, it was released as Homegrown, Donna Grotti. And um, the answer to my question, am I good enough, you know, is the music good enough, was basically no, not in the United States. <laughs> but um, but it did well in Europe. Oh, really? Yeah. I got a, a lot of fans over there that covered um, several of my songs, and one of the songs um, ended up on a gold album by a, a popular group over there called Lucifer. Sweden. And so that that did um, give me the green light, personally at least, to go ahead and pursue um, music. However, it's interesting, I really didn't pursue, I did pursue music as a songwriter, but I ended up becoming a TV and film composer. Yeah. Different direction. Yeah. Um, one other thing about My Three Sons I wanted to, come, uh, to mention was, uh, now you also got to write some of the shows? Not that I got to write them, it's, it's that... Um, I uh, I decided I would try writing a few of them, and mm-hmm. I and I did write two and sold two of the scripts. Ah, and um, and it was a short-lived career because I really 
did not enjoy. I loved writing, and I still do, but I didn't enjoy what happens to you, <laughs> what happens to it afterwards. I know they take it all. <laughs> they take it apart, and then, and that is the lot of the writer. I mean, I later learned how to deal with uh, with that, you know, as a composer, because the same thing happens to you as a composer. Oh, really? They... So, yes, you know, everybody has has something to say about it, and and a lot of most of the times, what you've written. The film gets changed, or the animation gets changed, and you end up having to change things. So you just get over it. Yeah, yeah. But all of that, the, the Mickey Mouse Club, and your your being the guy who did all the musical stuff, and then the writing and the bands you were in, and everything that that all sort of uh, was leading you to what you're doing now. That's right. I mean, that's it, right. It's a, it's a strange and magical thing, but. Yeah. Um, you know, I had this kind of uh, Tin Pan Alley background as I was growing up and uh, in music. And so, and then I got the, the, the Beatles injection, you know. Oh, yes. <laughs> and all of that. So I was able to, fortunately, I was able to um, trans, you know, transfer myself or what is it, you know, convert over to being a film composer, mm -hmm. songwriter. Um and I, I got, I just, it, it took a long time to get going, but I finally got a, a great break. Um, I got, uh, I, I wrote the, the Phil Donahue theme the last three years he was on, and that gave me a great break for Universal Studios and did all of their live shows up there, the Western Stunt Show and Beetlejuice's Graveyard Review. Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> that was, was a lot of that. Um, was my stuff, and then I I kind of ended up being the composer that you hired for for live um, big live shows, and I the the last really big live show I did was uh, in Las Vegas. It was a show called EFX. Mm -hmm. It was at the MGM Grand. It starred Michael Crawford, and then later Tommy Toon came in, and Rick Springfield, and David Cassidy. Um, but that was my music also, and I got mm -hmm. to use the London Symphony Orchestra for that, and the Toronto. Uh, symphony orchestra and conduct and um, by then my kids were starting to grow up I really wanted to be home because I was on the road you know uh, traveling to do these things yeah and um, so I I made a commitment to come home and sell my you know all my uh, portable gear and um, my anvil boxes and um, and I got lucky again and I got uh, the, this series called the Revolutionary War which was a six-hour show for Discovery that won the Cable Ace Award in 1996. So then I got known as the documentary composer. You, know, you always wear these different hats, and I just and I still do documentaries to this day. I love doing them. Uh, I've done a bunch of documentaries for Discovery, um, Mother Teresa, um, for uh, Lifetime, which, which um, won, a, won a Gracie Award. And um, one of my favorites is... Um, uh, Why Dogs Smile and Chimpanzees Cry. Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh, Fleischer film, Carol Fleischer film. It's um, won a lot of awards, won an Emmy. So, you know, that got me to 2000. And in 2000, I started working for Disney, and I've been doing uh, working for them ever since, doing all of their DVD platinum releases, all the special music and, um, all you know, um, bonus music that is needed for um, Lion King, um, Jungle Book, Aladdin, you know, all those, all those things. Yeah. And then finally, um, about three years ago, I started working for Walt Disney Records. They needed, um, some original songs for their princesses, you know, Snow White and Cinderella and, um, 
gosh, Sleeping Beauty, Mulan, and Ariel. So they needed original songs, and I started working with a wonderful lyricist named Marty Panzer, who's written a lot for uh, Barry Manilow. And he and I have written probably, oh, I would say 125 songs for Disney now. Wow. Um, And we've done... We've done three princess albums, so anybody out there who has little girls that love to be princesses, um, you know, you're, you're probably listening to Marty's and my music. <laughs> um, the uh, there's a princess uh, Christmas album yeah. out, and there's a princess birthday album coming out soon. Um, the first album we did was called "Looking at the Princess Tea Party" album. Hmm. So that's that got me back into songwriting. Yeah. So here you are, still. Working for the mouse. <laughs> it's a big circle, then. It's a big circle. I'm back working for Disney. Yeah. And, you know, kind of plugging in, you know, where they need me. And and here's here's the best thing about Disney is that um, in, let me see, in, it was in 84, I did a show for Disney where they needed, again, they needed a replacement for Bobby Burgess, the, uh, the dancing mouse who later was on Lawrence Welk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so they asked me would I replace Bobby Burgess on a show they were doing, a, a live show, and I said, "Well, okay, sounded like fun." And um, there was another, uh, an, what they call a a, uh, a kid of the kingdom, who was on that show, um, named Jenny, and she was a dancer singer, and I met her and um, and married her. Oh. And so we've been married for twenty four years now. So it's that. You know, so Disney has been very, very good to me, and I have I have a lot of gratitude for that. Uh, what what has happened uh, from you? Yeah, jeez. And before we get into your your Boomer CD, the one thing I wanted to mention was that uh, you were the composer and for the Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. I noticed. Yes, I was one of the composers. They used many composers. Yes, I did. I did a lot of what they call cues. You know, music cues for them and. And a couple of shows for them. I also wrote for that was Hanna Barbera. Yeah. I also wrote um, what was it called? Um, what a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. What a cartoon, uh, which is was a TV show on Nick at Night, and um, did some cartoons for them. So I've done a lot of animation work, and of course, working for Disney, um, you really have to know animation. You have to know, uh, you know, composing for animation, which is very active. Very, you know, the music has to be very active and follow the picture. So I've done a lot, a lot of that for, uh, for Disney. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's been amazing. When I look back, I can't, I mean, when I look in my closet and see all the music I've done, I go, Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and, that, note. Yeah. and uh, one more thing before we get into Boomer. Um, I just wanted to bring up at this point um, about Beverly Garland. Yes. Um, I, just wanted to to mention that some listeners may not know that she has passed away just recently. Yes, it, I found out the day that she passed away. Um, um, somebody called me up. I knew she was sick. I heard she was ailing, and um, and she was a she was a great lady. She had a great laugh, big guffaw. She um, she her laugh was really infectious. And mm-hmm. uh, when she came on. The set when the year that she came on, it really it really uh, brought energy to to the set that we'd never had. Well, you know, the Douglases didn't have many women on the right. Yeah, it was all, all men. So having Beverly, you know, as my TV mom was great. And um, last time I saw Beverly was at her hotel, her namesake hotel, the Beverly Garland 
Yep, I've been there. Hotel on Vineland, yeah. which is an iconic hotel for the uh, acting community here in Hollywood in town. Um, and um, I was just eating at the restaurant, you know, with a couple couple of friends and a couple, couple of other guys, and we were talking, and Beverly walked in. And there she was, you know, in the restaurant. She came and sat next to me and threw her arms around me, gave me a big hug, and and then proceeded to tell a joke that, you know, not only embarrassed me, but it <laughs> made me blush, but made the guys blush. That was Beverly. I mean, she was just, you know, she uh, she was all out there. Yeah, she sounds like a wonderful woman. Yeah, yeah, just a great personality, and she'll be she'll be missed. Yeah. Um, well, uh, now as far as Boomer, uh, this is your new project that you're you're starting out with, and uh, it has been released, right? Correct. Yes, and um, it's called Boomer Jazz Rock Pop. It's a six-song CD, and it's the first volume. Um, and there'll probably be at least two others. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, it, it's a couple of years. I got the idea. It kind of it hit me hard when I got it, but it, I have been since I was 50, really, trying to get music off the radio, listen to the radio that was satisfying, and I just finally gave up because I thought, I'm just over the hill, I guess, I just don't get it. And then what hit me was that, you know what, I came up in the 60s and 70s when music, it was who we were. It, you know, it was in our, it was in our bones. Right. We we couldn't wait for the next Stone album to come out or um, Led Zeppelin or Beatles, and we lived, and we and then we take it to each other's house and we play it for each other. And we, oh yes, just, we were just focused on that, and it spoke to us. It spoke about who we were, and it's and and who we weren't, and about the times. And it, I realized that, you know, the music that I was trying to get off the radio that I was listening to very, very rarely really spoke to me as a, as far as what the issues were that I was facing now in my life. Issues like, you know, being sandwiched, having children on one side and raising parents on the other. Um, issues like um, mortality, really. What, you know, the, the form is starting to get old. You know, the, the, the shell that we're living inside mm-hmm. of is, is, is starting to change its shape. What does it mean? You know, what? how do you go forward, you know, gracefully and, and how do you accept that and and what does it mean to you know? So that song I wrote, that was the first song I wrote called "Live It Up, Old Man." Yeah, uh, well, and, um, we'll take a second and just play that song then. Okay, great. All right. How does an old man feel when you've got a heart and it's quick to heal? What does an old man do when you do just fine when she's with you? How does an old man move when your skin's not smooth but you still got grooves? But old man, you feel brand new. Your love will shine through when you live it up, live it up. That's the better truth tonight. Live it up, live it up, 'cause you're bound to see the light. Raise it up, radiate. You have children to inspire. Live it up, celebrate, and you just might lift them higher. And if you do, it's okay to say you did enough. Well, one of the reasons I wrote Live It Up, Old Man, and I got a lot of flack from friends about putting the word old man in there. They just wanted to have it live it up. But 
you know, old has become a feared word in our society, and and it really that says more about our society than it says about the word old. And it, as as boomers, we have an opportunity to change that perception. I mean, old, elder, senior—you can't say mature anymore because that you get an R rating when you say that. So you know, um, old is not so bad. It's a it's a part of life, and. Um, it's revered in many other societies, and it's. I think we, as baby boomers, can start to turn that around. We turn it around the perception about what old is by changing the perception in ourselves mm-hmm. about what it means to get old, getting older. Um, and it's it's it can be done beautifully. It yes, there's aches and pains as it goes along, but what you're condensed with inside is. Um, a whole life full of experiences um, that ends up culminating in a wisdom. And if you can look at it like that and not get panicked about the journey, then there's a beauty that shines through. And that really was what I was intending to get across in that song. Yeah, and I noticed, I, I like the line you have there that says, uh, skin's not smooth, but you still got grooves. <laughs> skin's not smooth, but you still got grooves. <laughs> yeah, that was a good line. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so, you know, the whole idea was I, I wanted to speak about issues that we are undergoing now and facing now, but in a way that, that, that boomers can relate. So my briar patch musically is um, the Steely Dan um, songs and the, the James Croce songs, the James Taylor songs, and even, uh, I don't know if you remember this group, there, Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. I loved I remember, yeah. Kind of high harmony and that. Yeah. So protoplasm blues is kind of an homage to that kind of song. So um, why don't we listen to another cut? Sure. Any um, certain one you'd like to? Well, you can listen to, um, if you want to listen to protoplasm blues, which is really uh, kind of the lighter side. You know, the live it up old man is the serious side of getting older. Protoplasm blues is, is a, got a tongue in cheek and there's some humor in that. Yeah. All right. We'll give it a listen. In my belly, there's a house fly swarming, wants to get my toast and jelly, and the thrill is gone. Got to find it before too long. The hounds are feeding, and the alley cats are breeding. The housemaid is cleaning, and I'm looking for a meaning to turn me on. Last night, I went out to a party. thing and uh, it has a kind of a funky beat to it i like the line about the half a happy hour wipes me out oh. 
Yeah, I'm wiped out after half a happy hour. Yeah. That, that line was from Deborah Gus, and she uh, co-wrote lyrics on um, a number of these tunes. Great lyricist. And, um, yeah, that was her line. I cracked up when I read that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that song. That's a, it's got a nice little beat to it. Thank you. Yeah, that, that kind of reminds The way it starts out has a kind of a Steely Dan feel, and then it has more like a Dan Hicks once you get into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, another another uh, another subject um, that is a, a kind of a complex one, but but an interesting one to take on, especially when you're a baby boomer, is what is love? You know, uh, you you know, at least myself, I've been through you know a lot of different experiences and so forth, um, and I I uh, I had a son. I have a son, and he came home. With, this is a couple years ago from one of his first dates, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he was all excited and he came into the studio and he was you know, all excited. And I said, what's going on, Joey? And, um, he said, Oh man, dad, I think he said, I think I made it to second base. <laughs> I went, Oh no. Inside I'm going, Oh my God. Oh, no. You know? And he said, you know, what's second base, dad? And I didn't know what second base was. You know, I, I wasn't even sure what he meant, what, what was first base. But I'm glad he didn't say home plate. I knew what that meant. <laughs> so, you know, I went, oh, my gosh. It's like, you know, boys and, and men. And, you know, it's all about conquering and getting somewhere and making it and scoring and all that stuff. And so, you know, I I started to talk to him, you know, and and I started to tell him, I thought, I'm going to approach it this way. I'm going to tell you, Joy, what love isn't. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to say what it is. But here's what it isn't. It isn't pleasure. It isn't desire. And so I started getting this song happening. What it's a, and I called it Love Is Not. It's, it's a really more fun song musically than it, than it is lyrically serious. But um, the, that was the approach on the song. By the way, Joey listens to the song and still doesn't get what it means. So <laughs> I think... I think it's one of those things that, uh, you know, you, you get as you get older. Yeah. But it really is, the approach is, these are the things that love isn't. And once you clear that away from your mind, then you're kind of left with what love may be. And mm-hmm. that's, that's why I wrote Love Is Not. Yeah. And, and, and that has a slight reggae feel to it. I, I, that's what I got from it anyways. Yeah. It has, it has a reggae feel to it. And, uh, um, it's probably for me. It's probably the most fun song um, on the on the CD. Well, let's give it a listen. Little boy, full of joy, his heart pitter pats every day when the sun comes. God knows where he goes. He's free as the wind as he plays on the drum drums. Blue skies in his eyes. He sees everyone with grace and gladness. Too bad, very sad. He loses his way in a world of madness. In a flash, he's a young man of twenty. Okay, 
that was Love Is Not from Don's Boomer CD, and um, that's uh, I, I like that song. That's got that's one of the first one after listening to the the six. It sort of stuck out right off when I listened to it. Great, yeah. A lot of people seem to to really um, favor that song. I'm getting really a lot of good good reaction on that song, and that's a song that's so fun to play live. I'm I'm putting a band together. Um, we're getting ready to go out next year. And, um, and that, that, you know, the band, go, let's, let's start with that song. And so it's a good, you know, energy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's one thing I want to ask. It, are you playing all the instruments on this or are, do you have a band that is playing in the studio with you? Oh, I have a band and, um, uh, you know, I, I do the keyboard work and Ed Smith on drums and on the recordings is, uh, Ron Comey on guitar, uh, Steve Wilkinson on bass, um, and uh, most of the percussion is actually uh, uh, I do myself, and uh, do. there's some sampling going on. Um, Michael Schneider, Michael Kerry Schneider, um, helps uh, with the background vocals throughout the whole record. Michael was a member of a group called Sneaker. It's more than just the two of us that we just have to keep. Holding on, holding on. Okay. I don't know if you remember that. Song. The song I do, I, I didn't remember the group when you mentioned it, but the song I remember. Beautiful, incredibly mystical, magical song um, that Michael co-wrote and mm. sang lead on. And um, so you'll hear, if you remember that song in your mind, you'll hear Michael's voice uh, throughout the record, especially on Reinventing Ourselves. Um, you'll hear his voice. Um, you know, in the background singers there. Yeah, reinventing ourselves. Um, I, I like the horn section in that. Thank you. Yeah, I was going for our Chicago. That I, it's funny you say that. When I heard it, I said, "Hmm, that's got like a, a Chicago sound to it." <laughs> good, good, good. Then if, if somebody got what I was going for. Yeah, it, uh, uh, it. I wanted to capture that that feeling of the late '60s and early '70s. Um, you know, when we were really. Um, we were going to Selma, Alabama. We were we were protesting in Washington D.C. and it was about women's rights and it, Martin Luther King and Janis Joplin and, and um, Bobby Kennedy and that whole period was such an amazing period. Um, and so it, it, the song starts off really looking back, you know, at the '60s and what we did as boomers, as baby boomers back then. Um, and and it's kind of a, a pat on the back in the first part of the song. When I was writing it, I had a, you know, I had a tough time. I got to the bridge, and I really didn't know where else to go with it because it was, up to that point, it had been a, a historical song about the past. And I, I liked what the lyrics were doing. And again, Deborah Gusson helped me write that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was colorful. The lyrics were really, really saying who we were. Um, but I didn't want to keep saying who we were. And then it hit me that, oh my gosh, it's a protest song. It needs to be a protest song because it's who who we are today. Is we're the same people we were in the sixties. It's time that we step up and um, and say, you know what, that whole thing we were about in the sixties about peace on the planet, about awareness of um, of of issues of of equality, of, of human rights, um, of sensitivity to uh, people's needs, 
that whole thing that happened in the 60s, we're still there, and we're even more there now. Yeah. And so the song became like a protest song, and well, that's perfect. It's a it's a it's a modern day protest song. <coughs> and so I wanted to, I um I wanted the message to be there without it being too heavy. So I've got some tambourines and some twelve string guitars and things that kind of remind you of the, you know, of the um the patchouli and the um. The, the different things that were happening in the 60s. Yeah. So uh, that was a, that was a fun song to do, and uh, that's also a fun song um, to perform. It does have a message that is controversial, and it's um, it's really along the lines of John Lennon's Imagine. I told the band this is probably the last song we're going to do in the show, and if anybody's going to get mad at me and they want to throw things, it gives us an opportunity to get off the stage. <laughs> but... Um, It'll be interesting to perform the song live, um, and uh, you know, it, it's just an opportunity for for me to kind of say who who I am, um, where I'm at, and uh, it's not a political statement, really. It's just a statement of um, of humanity, in, mm-hmm. at least in my mind. Yeah. Now, so that's reinventing ourselves. Yeah. Now, the other song, the final song on the, the CD, um, is a title that back. On My Three Sons, the song is you could have played, but you couldn't have said the title. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I I see me walking into the producers of My Three Sons going, can I sing this song I wrote called Better Than Sex? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) That would have raised a few eyebrows back then. (laughs) So we'll put Robbie and Katie in the same bed, but you're not going to sing Better Than Sex. (laughs) Yeah, um... Uh, it again. I, I had the title first, and I it, it, it's a boomer uh, issue because you know um, even though sex is on, it's not on the front burner like it used to be in our twenties and thirties. It's on the back burner, but and I started to write a song about you know communication being more important than sex. But I realized that you know the first verse getting into the song, there's no way I'm going to sell that idea with with a title like that. So uh, it was a difficult song to write, um, but. The undercurrent issue of that song really is is what a lot of uh, boomers face today, which is where the woman is out working and the man is out working too, and they're raising a family. <clears throat> and uh, and so the the issue of how do you have a home, how do you provide a home and make a home, and uh, keep a family, um, keep the kids where they're feeling the, the you know that you're touching in with them, that there's um, time for them. And that there's a home, a central hub where the family uh, feels safe and 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 can express themselves. Hard to do, and it's and I I am all really all for um, women's rights and women being out in the um, in the world. I mean, I it's better off that they run the world, I think, than the men, the Methodists. Um, but it's just an issue we're facing now. You know, how do you do that? And that's something that my wife and I have um had to look at and um you know i i mean i think we're doing it okay we have uh, two kids 18 and 14 and they seem to be okay uh um and so i i think we're doing we're doing it all right it's just it's just not easy it's not like it used to be in the 50s and 60s right yeah so better than sex is even though it's kind of tongue in cheek it's really the dynamic between two people um both of them who are working Oh, 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 oh,
Now people have listened to all these cuts that we've been playing, and um, you know where can they get it? Um, right now they can get it um, at uh, DonGrady.com and www.DonGrady.com. They, if they press on the and the, you know if you want to see the Mickey Mouse Club pictures and the My Three Sons pictures, there's a really fun Memory Lane page there. But the there's a tab called Boomer. And um, they can go on there. They can hear samples of the songs, and, and that's that's where they can um, get the album if uh, they want to. Mm-hmm. And just so our audience knows that they can also, on our website, I will be putting a link to your website so they can just click on the picture of the Boomer CD, and that will take them right to your site. Uh, they'll be able to, to listen to the, to the cuts and things like that and purchase it. Great, that's great, and uh, I, I highly recommend it because I really enjoyed your CD. It very, it it doesn't have you know you didn't do any primal screams or anything in there. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe the next one. <laughs> now yeah, you kids are leaving the home or something. Yeah. <laughs> now you are working on another one. You said. Yeah, I'm working on volume two. I don't know what the title is yet. Yeah, <clears throat> there's a a couple of songs that are already. Uh, Done for that volume, and uh, primarily I'm I'm getting the band um, shaped up so that we can um, you know hit the wood mm-hmm. um, early next year and and get out. Um, I've been in the studio so long as a composer, you know, doing TV and film stuff. I, <laughs> you know, my skin is white. And you want to get out? <laughs> I want to I want to get some uh, get out and and feel the air and and um, and get the get the feel of of, of playing live again, I, I'm just really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be that'll be fun and something different from, like you say, being inside all the time doing the composing, which you've done a great job with that too. Um, thank you, thank you. And by the way, um, um, I'll be posting on the on the website, or, or my my uh, webmaster will be doing it because um, I'm just starting to learn how to get around on that thing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, where the performances will be. So, oh, good. Um, I, you know, if somebody would like to know ahead and doesn't want to keep looking there, if they go to my website and if they sign up and put their email address, 
um, uh, in in there, then um, they they'll be getting a notice. You know, when we come to their town, um, they'll get an email about about that. Great. So That's anybody who would like to do that. I I, I highly encourage it. Yeah, sounds great. Well, Don, I, I want to uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, this has been a, a, a great thing to listen to all the things you've done and what you're doing and what you're continuing to do. It's been fun. Thank you for a, a you know fun afternoon. Yeah, I have one more question. What I'm wondering is, looking at the pictures on your website, how do you look as young as you look? <laughs> you haven't changed. No. The magic of Photoshop. <laughs> but I looked at that and I thought, boy, you, you look so young. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I... Um, you know, what, I, what is it? I don't know. They're just, uh, you know. Is it in the water you're drinking? Or? <laughs> milk or something. <laughs> well, Don, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Once again, I want to thank Don Grady for taking the time to talk to us about so many different things, so many interesting things, and it was really fun to talk to him, and uh, we appreciate it very, very, very much. And uh, let's see here. Check out his Boomer CD. It's a great CD. You want to go out and you want to get it because uh, it's, it's some really good songs in there, like you were saying. There's some, you know, the Chicago feel to some of them and the uh, Steely Dan, and, 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 uh, but, but deep down, it's all Don Grady, so you uh, want to get that thing and, and, and uh, enjoy it. And uh, he's coming out with some more, and who knows, maybe we'll get a chance to talk to him again about uh, his next CD when it comes out. Uh, keep our fingers crossed, who knows. All right, and let's see here. Now, just as we finish up uh, episode 31, I want to remind you once again, we have a contest going on right now on uh, an autographed photo of Ryan and Sean from Ryan and Sean's Not So Excellent Adventure. You could win that. Uh, Basically, go to our website, go to the Ryan and Sean Not So Excellent Adventures uh, page that we have, and you can get all the details on how to win that. And uh, you just got to watch a YouTube video that we have in there and uh, give us some information. And uh, you, like I said, you can you can find it all on the webpage. And uh, let's see what else we got here. We have uh, the um, the poll, which is going on. Go to the front page of onscreenandbeyond.com. Go all the way down to the bottom. Our poll is there. This time is what's your favorite Christmas special? Is it Charlie Brown, The Grinch, Rudolph, or Frosty the Snowman? Tell us what your opinion is. All right. And once again, check out our holiday gift guide. To You know, you can pick up some um, CDs, DVDs of different people we've had, including Ryan and Sean's Not-So-Excellent Adventure, which is now out on DVD. And also, we have uh, Chad and Jeremy's new Archaeology CD, which is a great CD. Sounds really good. They're, they're sounding great. Uh, Stan Livingston's, if you're planning to get into the acting business, this is something you really want to get. It'll save you a lot of time, money, and heartache. And uh, also, Don Grady's Boomer CD. It's a great little CD. Check it out. And that's about it uh, for episode 31. Uh, I'm not sure who we're going to have for episode 32, but uh, I do have some people lined up, and uh, we will come out with uh, that um, after the holidays, the beginning of the first the new year. And uh, we're hoping to make some changes to our website so it looks a little bit different. And uh, we also are coming out with some more video casts that uh, we'll be posting up on YouTube. 
And uh, let's see what else we got going on. Um, we may have some other surprises coming throughout the year as the new year comes your way. And, uh, you know, all sorts of things heading our way and, and uh, some great stuff. I hope you all have a nice holiday, nice Christmas, nice whatever you're having. And uh, happy new year. And we will see you at the beginning of the year right here on On Screen and Beyond. Till next time, this is Brian saying take care. Thank you.